Um, thank you for the introduction. I am very grateful to be here. And I remember like it was yesterday, my first Amen conference. And it's hard to imagine, um, yeah, what God has done in, in my life up until this point. But let's pray to get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us here to this Amen conference. We thank you uh, for giving us um, a little bit more daylight uh, that we can continue to minister for you in the different settings that you've placed us. I pray that as we discuss today how to take care of patients with dental infections, that we would um, not only be able to understand um, the technical aspects, Lord, but more importantly, that we would uh, have your heart towards the patients that you come into our care. And we thank you for hearing this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I just wanted to start off a little bit because sometimes I don't feel like a dentist or like a uh, medical student. But oral and maxillofacial surgery is a journey. Um, it's a very long journey. So I don't need to tell you about the length of that journey. But these are some of the beautiful people that God has placed in my life along that way, one of them being Carlos, the other being um, Janessa, my fiance, <laughs> who incidentally, um, it was on a mission trip to Bangladesh with Gerardo and Carlos where we started talking. So go to Bangladesh. There are many good reasons to go to Bangladesh. <laughs> um, so I was thinking, when I was thinking about what to talk about and what to share, um, primarily because right now I'm in the middle of medical school in my OMFS training. Uh, I don't feel like I have a lot of patient contact in a dental sense um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And most of you in this room have more uh, experience than me when it comes to taking care of dental problems. But the one thing, or one of, one of a couple of things that as an OMFS resident that you get fairly comfortable with is taking care of patients with infections. Um, oftentimes uh, very large dental infections. And so I thought that that would be something that I could talk a little bit about and, um, and discuss a little bit about what are the indications for how we treat and then also how can we involve spiritual care in the treatment of these types of patients. So the objectives, I won't read through them uh, one by one, but essentially we wanted to look at what are the signs and symptoms of a dental infection, um, and then just review the diagnostic criteria, um, describe a little bit of the treatment modalities that are available for a general dentist or an oral and maxillofacial surgeon for treating a dental infection, um, and then look at the signs and symptoms of a patient that's in emotional distress, um, and look at how Jesus treated patients like that, and also review um, evidence-based guidelines for antibiotic therapy. So to start off with, um, if you have, well, we can just look at the verse on the screen, but Matthew 4, verse 23 is a very instructive verse, I believe, in the Bible that talks about how Jesus made his ministry, how he patterned his ministry, and it gives us... Um, sort of a blueprint as to how we should pattern our ministries as well. And so Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. And I think sometimes um, we get into the day-in, day-out aspect of healing the sickness among the people, but as we've been challenged already by um, 
Dr. Kim and um, Gerardo and um, everybody so far at this conference, it's not just the, the healing, the sickness, and the disease. It's also the preaching the good news of the kingdom and the teaching. And so that's what our, our goal is, is to integrate all of those things in our care for patients. Um, so as we talk about uh, dental infections, um, I'll be referencing a guideline by the ADA um, that uses this term a lot. Um, so these are um, a couple of the different ways you can go when you're treating a patient with dental infections, as, as we all know. But this definitive conservative tooth-preserving dental treatment um, is something that you'll see referenced a lot um, as we go through the presentation. Um, and that is um, pulpotomy, pulpectomy, non-surgical root canal treatment, or incision and drainage. Um, and then the guideline that we'll be looking at doesn't really talk about extractions because it's out of the scope of what they were talking about, but that's another um, way that dental infections can be treated too. So we'll start off with the first case, and these are all fictitious cases, but hopefully they'll illustrate the points. Um, so let's say that it's the beginning of Monday, Monday morning, at 8 o'clock, and you have an add-on, and it's a new patient um, that's in pain, John Doe. Um, so John is a 23-year-old male. Um, he comes in with a chief complaint. He says, my face is killing me. Um, I'm leaving on a week-long trip um, this morning, and uh, it's 8 o'clock right now. I'm leaving at 9. I just need some medicine to get me through this. So you review his history. Um, he has a history of type 1 diabetes, uh, no allergies, and he's been having pain, um, dental pain, for a week. His vital signs, uh, he has a blood pressure of 115 over 72, heart rate of 65, respirations of 13, and a temperature of 98.6. You do a thorough extraoral exam, you don't see any swelling anywhere. An intraoral exam, and you see that tooth number 19 has um, gross recurrent decay around a PFM crown, uh, lingering pain to cold, um, and then 10 out of 10 pain on biting uh, with no, no swelling. So you look at, you get a PA and you see that there's obvious caries, there's an obvious periapical lesion. Um, what are you thinking you need to do? He has to leave in an hour and he's not willing to have any treatment done right then. He just wants a prescription. So what antibiotic would you prescribe? So trick question. No antibiotics, actually. Um, and this was a bit surprising to me as well. Um, going through the, the ADA clinical practice guideline, there are many conditions in which they actually do not recommend giving antibiotics. And so in this case, um, he has symptomatic irreversible pulpitis um, and symptomatic apical periodontitis, uh, but they do not recommend giving antibiotics for this type of um, a patient. There's no swelling, there's no systemic involvement. And the downsides of giving antibiotics with increased antibiotic resistance and so forth outweigh the benefits. Um, and so just to review a little bit of the, the diagnostic criteria for these different conditions, um, we have symptomatic irreversible pulpitis, uh, which is spontaneous pain with, that may linger, with thermal changes owing to vital inflamed pulp that is incapable of healing. Um, Symptomatic apical periodontitis, uh, pain with mastication, percussion or palpation, with or without radiographic signs, pulp necrosis, and symptomatic apical periodontitis, um, when you have a non-vital pulp, um, with pain with mastication, percussion or palpation, and again, with or without uh, evidence of radiographic um, periapical pathosis and without swelling. Um, and then the same, um, just with localized apical Acute apical abscess is when you see signs of purulent material or localized swelling. 
Um, and then acute apical abscess with systemic involvement. So when you see systemic symptoms such as fever, um, malaise, lymph node involvement, or greater swelling. So in a case like this, uh, and I know I've done it before, you prescribe an antibiotic and it's really not indicated. Um, now let's look at a second case. So this case, um, we'll call her Jillian Doe. Um, and she's also coming in with pain. So Jillian is a 45-year-old female, um, and she says, I'm having swelling of my upper lip. So that's her chief complaint. You review her past medical history, um, none, no allergies. Uh, she's had swelling for two days. Uh, her vital signs, you have a blood pressure of 119 over 77, a heart rate of 85, respirations of 12 per minute, and temperature of 98.8. And when you examine her extraorally, you find that there is mild swelling of the left upper lip. Um, an intraoral exam, uh, there's gross lingual decay on tooth number 10, uh, fluctuant swelling in the, in the maxillary vestibule, and then uh, no response to, to, to cold um, when you test tooth number 10, and 10 out of 10 pain on biting. You take some radiographs and there is a periapical lesion on tooth number 10. And Jillian says that she does not want to save the tooth and she's not interested in an implant in the future. So how do you proceed? You can take uh, responses from the audience. <laughs> how would you proceed? What would you do next? Okay, that sounds good. If you can get her numb, take it out. And so, yes, so treatment for this, she has an abscess, um, so can perform an incision and drainage, um, which I was not taught how to do that in dental school. I'm just curious, how many people in this room would do an IND? Awesome, okay, cool. So one person. Um, <laughs> so it's not that complex, actually. Um, so this, this series of pictures uh, shows the procedure you get it numb. Now she has an infection and oftentimes it is harder to get someone numb when there's an abscess, but it can still be done. You can still do a block, you can still infiltrate. Um, and then essentially take a scalpel and open it up and, and use some hemostats, get out the pus, uh, put in a little drain and suture it up. And then take out the tooth. Now, um, and we'll talk about this in a second. Would you give antibiotics? How many people would give antibiotics? How many people wouldn't give antibiotics? Okay. All right, so again, actually no, no antibiotics. Um, and again, this was surprising to me when I was going through this because a lot of times I think we over rely on antibiotics for a, lot of time, for a lot of things that it's not actually indicated. So this is a case where she has pulp necrosis, symptomatic apical periodontitis, um, and a localized acute apical abscess, but there's no signs of systemic involvement. So in this, kind of, in, this, uh, in this case, it's not recommended to prescribe antibiotics. You give definitive treatment and that's it. Now, can you extract an infected tooth? Now sometimes, I know in dental school, again, sometimes they'll tell you, you can't take out a tooth if there's an infection. Put them on antibiotics, wait a few days until it calms down, and then, and then take out the tooth. Um, what does the literature show? So. Uh, just a couple of um, studies here that I looked up. Um, this one from 2018 um, 
uh, was a study of 82 patients um, where they wanted to see if um, you should or should not extract acutely infected tooth. Um, so in this case, in these in these patients, um, they found that um, after extraction, there did not they did not find any symptoms that could indicate a systemic response. They didn't find any increased incidence of um, dry socket. Um, and found that infected teeth should be extracted as soon as possible and the procedure should not be postponed by um, giving antibiotics. And sometimes as, a, as an OMFS resident, you will see patients that get referred to us or end up in the emergency room uh, with an abscess and the story they tell oftentimes is very familiar. They say, oh, I went to see a dentist and um, I had, you know, they, they put me on some antibiotics. They said, you're infected, come back in a few days and we'll take care of it. And so they go home, they take the antibiotics and then they come back uh, at the end of the week and by then their face is like out to here and then they get sent to the emergency room and then it's a lot worse of an outcome for the patient because it's a lot more pain, a lot more morbidity. Um, so you can actually take out an acutely infected tooth it may be harder to numb, it's true, uh, but if you rely on nerve blocks and um, let the patient know that it may be a little harder to numb, it can be done. Um, another uh, study here, this was more of a historical review going over um, the, the original literature that kind of suggested that there was an increased risk of seeding infection to deeper fascial spaces um, when you take out an acutely infected tooth, um, found that that's actually not the case. Um, so you can take out an acutely infected tooth. So let's go to case number three, um, Janet Doe. So this patient is coming in also in pain. And uh, she's a 50-year-old female. Her chief complaint is, I've had pain on my left lower molar for two months, and now my face swelled up. You review her past medical history, uh, she has, um, I'm sorry, that's a typo there, she has type 2 diabetes, um, no allergies, and has had swelling for the last four days. Um, you check her vital signs, and her blood pressure is 125 over 75, uh, with a heart rate of 99, respiratory rate of 22, and a temperature of 101.3. Um, so then, on examining her, uh, you notice significant left facial swelling um, and are unable to feel the left inferior border of her, of her mandible. And when you look inside her mouth, you see recurrent decay on tooth number 19, fluctuant swelling in the left mandibular buccal vestibule. Tooth number 19 has no response to cold when you test it, and there's 10 out of 10 pain on biting. And uh, when you See the patient, this is what she looks like um, with some significant swelling of the left side of her face. Um, and then you take a radiograph and you see periapical, um, a periapical lesion. So for this one, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and discuss how you would proceed um, in this case. So just take 30 seconds to discuss what would you do next. All right, seems like we had some good collaboration. So could we hear from a couple of groups, what would you do next? <laughs> oh, that's not a good answer. <laughs> okay, so you'd refer the patient. Okay, okay, so referral and probably some antibiotics. Uh, anyone from this side of the room? 
Okay. So antibiotics, and then um, see if it gets better, and then to the ER in the back. Yeah, absolutely. So you could do a root canal um, with some antibiotics. Anyone else? No one else. Okay. So um, going back to the guideline, and then I'll talk about what I would probably think would be um, a good way to go for this patient. Um, the recommendation would be that in this case, with a patient with um, pulp necrosis and acute apical abscess with systemic involvement, um, there should be an urgent referral um, for, uh, for, tr for tr definitive treatment. So whether that be root canal or um, extraction of the tooth. And then if there's concern for deeper space infection or immediate threat to life, then refer for urgent evaluation in addition to giving antibiotics. Um, so in a patient like this, um, just going back a little bit to her, her clinical presentation, um, and this is a, 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 the type of presentation that we see a lot of times in the emergency room too, um, with a patient where their swelling is significant to the point where it's, it's into the neck, um, that's, a, that's kind of a scary sign. Um, and then with a, with a fever as well, um, and uh, obvious source of infection, um, she definitely needs some, some definitive treatment. So um, the recommendation, uh, uh, at least what I would think would be appropriate to do for this patient would be to send her to either an oral maxillofacial surgeon or to the emergency room uh, for definitive treatment. And uh, I thought it would be nice to just go over a few of the things that um, we generally look for in, um, in, in oral maxillofacial surgery when we see a patient that has a, an acute infection such as this. So some of the symptoms and signs that uh, are concerning um, would be a patient, okay, of course, in this case, she has dental pain. Um, pain, however, that's not just on the tooth, but extending to the face or the neck, that's a little bit more concerning. Um, if they're having difficulty swallowing, um, that could be, that's concerning as well. And oftentimes, um, these patients, when when they come, they'll tell you, oh, I can't swallow. And then it's important to find out, well, is, is it truly they can't swallow or are they just having pain on swallowing? So is it a dinophagia or is it dysphagia? In either case, though, these are symptoms um, suggesting that this patient's infection is progressing. Um, decreased oral intake, uh, again, something that we see um, frequently where they aren't able to eat as much because of the pain. Um, and then, of course, swelling. Um, and then uh, specifically, um, signs that are concerning are a patient with fever. Um, in the case of uh, an emergency room setting uh, with an elevated white blood cell count. Um, also, floor of the mouth elevation. So in, in examining these patients, um, what we'll look for is to see, is the swelling um, in an area that could affect their airway? So if below their tongue is starting to swell up, that's a concern. Um, if they're having swelling in the, the vestibule or the palate, um, that's uh, concerning as well, um, though not immediately for the airway. Um, sometimes if it's an upper tooth, um, there can be swelling that progresses to surrounding their eye, um, causing periorbital edema or vision changes. Sometimes um, patients will say they can't see. Um, or if you cannot palpate uh, the, the lower border of the mandible. And that's, that's one thing that, that we look for a lot um, in, to see if this is progressing towards something that's like into the submandibular space. 
Um, or if the patient is unable to, to tolerate their secretion. So if they're constantly spitting up or drooling, um, these are all concerning signs that they need some definitive treatment. Um, now coming back to this, this case, however, let's say we decide, okay, we're gonna send her to the emergency room. So we let her know we're, you have a serious infection, we're gonna send you to the emergency room for some treatment. Um, but she starts to cry and she says, doctor, I'm so scared, am I gonna be okay? I'm starting to feel like it's hard to swallow. So when a patient is um, acutely infected, as, as Dr. Moretta was saying earlier, um, this can be a time where um, they're more open, yes, to spiritual care, um, because they're afraid. Um, and, and a lot of times um, I've seen these patients in the emergency room and uh, they're afraid of the pain of the procedure, uh, primarily, that's one of the biggest fears. Um, uh, but sometimes patients can be afraid um, that they're going to, they're not going to do well, that they're, they're going to have a problem. So what would you do for her in this case about her distress? How would you address that with her? Turn to the person next to you and uh, discuss for a little bit what you would do next. All right. Thank you. So could we hear again from a couple of different groups, what would you do next? What would you, how would you address her distress? Uh, maybe we'll start with someone on the left side of the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So consoling and potentially offering to pray with her. Um, anyone on the other side of the room, what would you do next? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that is a great point. So that prayer not only helps calm the patient, but it also modifies our own behavior as the provider so that we can be more compassionate toward them. Anyone else, any other thoughts? Yeah, that's a great point as well. Asking specifically what are they, what are they specifically afraid of um, and so that we can then address their specific fear. So I just wanted to uh, spend a, a little bit of time. Oh, there's another hand. Yeah, that is a wonderful point in, in not making them feel worse for what they're already feeling bad about, but giving them, giving them grace. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so... Um, wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at how Jesus healed those who came to him in distress. So let's just imagine for a moment that we are with Jesus in his clinic, and his first patient of the day, um, no name, but they're coming in with leprosy. And leprosy is incurable, by the way. So let's turn, uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn, otherwise we can read on the screen, um, Luke 5, verses 12 to 13 and look at this story of Jesus and how he healed this man who came to him with leprosy. And it says, It happened while he was in one of the cities. Behold, there was a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I want to be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him. 
So if we were to take this encounter and, and break it down in a, a, a clinical way, we would say this is a patient presenting with an unknown name, unknown age, um, with a chief complaint of, if you want to, you can make me clean. We know that he has leprosy, which is incurable, um, and his examination shows that he's full of leprosy, not just in one spot, but all over. So this is a very bad case. Um, and he's prostrate on the ground. He's literally bowing in front of Jesus saying, he needs and wants to be made clean. So what did Jesus do for him? And um, it's really simple. Jesus touched him. Jesus told him, I want to. And Jesus healed him. And I think these are very simple points, but also very, very important for how we treat our patients. Um, I know we all have biases, and oftentimes a patient coming in that's in extreme pain or maybe uh, has an obvious infection or something, it's not the patient that you're the most excited to see um, because you think this is gonna be complicated, it's, you know, it's gonna be not the most pleasant experience. But do we come near to them? Do we touch them like Jesus did? Or do we kind of just move through it faster because we just wanna get done with it and over? Um, do we express to them that we want to treat them, that we want to help them, that we want them to get better? Um, and then do we heal them by, Jesus, by God's grace? So just another discussion question, which I'd like you to again turn to the person next to you and say, how could we communicate in this, in this hypothetical scenario to Janet that we want to help her? What could we do or say that specifically communicates to her we want to help? So just discuss that briefly. All right. What did you guys come up with? How would you communicate to her your desire to help? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So giving our full attention to them and, and showing that empathy. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Any other thoughts of how you'd communicate your desire to help her? Exactly, exactly. And... And how often do we do that? How often do we follow up with our patients? And probably a lot of you do it a lot. I don't do it very well. But it's not that hard to just give them a call the next day. You sent them to the emergency room. You don't know what happened. Find out how are they doing. Um, and, and express that you're committed to their well-being. So oftentimes I think we, in, um, yeah, in, in taking care of patients, we see our responsibility, at least I'm speaking for myself, and I don't know if it applies to anyone else, but as pertaining to that patient, our responsibility is that 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes that they're in the chair, and then they leave and my responsibility is done until the next time they come in. But not so, really. Um, why not give them a call? Why not follow up with them and see how they're doing? A quote from Ministry of Healing that I found helpful also um, that uh, is a practical way to express our desire to help one, is um, sharing God's word, sharing promises from God's word with our patients. Um, this is from Ministry of Healing, page 121, uh, paragraph 2. It says, let the physician or the dentist make his mind a f or her mind a storehouse of fresh thoughts. Let him study the word of God diligently, that he may be familiar with its promises. 
Let him learn to repeat the comforting words that Christ spoke during his earthly ministry when giving his lessons and healing the sick. He should talk of the works of healing wrought by Christ, of his tenderness and love. Never should he neglect to direct the minds of his patients to Christ, the chief physician. And so how often, how often do we um, take that opportunity to say, the Bible has this promise or this word of comfort for you right now, or Jesus healed people that were far sicker than you are, so I know he's going to help you. Um, and just think how, how powerful that would be and how comforting that would be to our patients. Um, let's look at another case, uh, another one of Jesus' patients on his schedule. Um, this man, we do know his name. His name was Bartimaeus, um, and he's coming in for blindness, also incurable, by the way. Um, so Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52 um, chronicles this story. And it says, They came to Jericho. As he went out from Jericho with his disciples in a great multitude, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, you son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him that he should be quiet, but he cried out much more. You son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, Cheer up, get up, he is calling you. He, casting away his cloak, sprang up and came to Jesus. Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that is a transliteration for great teacher, that I may see again. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the way. So if we were to again break this down into a clinical encounter, we see that this is a, um, a man named Bartimaeus presenting with a chief complaint that he would like to see again. He has a past medical history of blindness, which is incurable. And examining him, we find that he has a complete cranial nerve 2 deficit. How does Jesus treat him? Jesus stood still. Jesus didn't see him as an annoyance, but was willing to treat him. And Jesus healed him. And again, many of the same principles, but Jesus was very busy and on his way somewhere, but he stopped, stood still, and called him. How can we make it clear to our patients that we are willing to see them, patients like Janet, a patient with an emergency, in our offices? How can we communicate not just verbally, but perhaps how we structure our schedule or um, how we think about the day going into work that we're willing to see patients that might come in unexpectedly? So just talk for 20 seconds to the person next to you um, about that. How can we show them practically that we're willing to see them? All right. Practical solutions for how we can show our patients that we're willing to see them. Any thoughts? Maybe in the front row here, I saw a lot of discussion. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So you build in slots into your schedule for the unexpected. That's awesome. That's awesome. Any other 
Any other ways in which you're already doing this, perhaps, uh, in the way that you structure your schedule? Dr. Otis, you look like you want to say something. <laughs> yeah, thank you all for sharing all of those things. So I just put this slide here. Um, when you look at the picture on the left, what do you imagine that the patient's face looks like? Probably not what you see on the right. Um, and sometimes I think, uh, myself included, the ideal day looks like something, uh, only, only planned procedures or only things that are easily dealt with. But um, no matter what their problem is, it's our responsibility to help them, even if they're coming in with something uh, as big and as scary as a big abscess. So let's go back to the case of Janet. We'll go to the emergency room um, and just go through briefly what her course might look like in the emergency room. Um, so usually when a patient gets sent to the emergency room with an, uh, with an abscess, they'll usually get a, a dose of IV antibiotics. Um, they'll usually get a CT scan, um, which will show whether there's an infection or not. This is just an example of what a large um, abscess uh, submandibular and looks a little bit like it's extending to the buccal space would look like. Um, and then the surgical procedure to, to uh, drain their abscess. So if graphic images bother you, don't look for the next slide. Um, but this is essentially what it would look like um, to treat a patient with this type of an abscess, which is, uh, is pretty uncomfortable, um, but it's what's necessary to, to get them taken care of, um, to get the infection drained, and uh, oftentimes these patients will be in the hospital for a night, two nights, uh, sometimes longer. Sometimes it requires multiple washouts and multiple returns to the operating room, as Dr. Moretta can attest. Um, and so anything we can do to prevent this from getting this far is a huge service uh, to our patients. So early detection and, and early treatment is, is very important. Um, so I just put this, this timeline here um, just as a reminder. Really, all along the way, we have opportunities and touch points for spiritual care, um, but especially when... Uh, a patient's initially being seen with an infection, and then when they're being treated for that infection, whether it's um, in the office, in the hospital, uh, in the emergency room, these are opportunities where we can pray with them. And just a couple other quotes from Ministry of Healing that really highlight the importance of praying with patients before uh, larger procedures, for instance. Um, page 118, uh, paragraph 3, before performing a critical operation, let the physician ask for the aid of the great physician. Let him assure the suffering one that God can bring him safely through the ordeal, that in all times of distress, he is a sure refuge for those who trust in him. And um, I just, I, I remember a particular instance, and I don't remember all the details of the case, um, but I remember taking care of a patient in the emergency room um, that had come in with, a, with an abscess. It wasn't a, one that required going to the operating room. It was something that could be taken care of in the emergency room, but they were quite afraid. And oftentimes these patients are, are afraid mostly of the, of the pain that the procedure is going to cause. Um, usually a patient that ends up with an abscess is someone that probably is not taking the best care of their teeth. Not always, but oftentimes. And oftentimes that's because they've had a bad experience with the dentist in the past and they're afraid that it's going to hurt. Um, and so in this case, um, this patient came in and I was going to do uh, an extraction and take out the, uh, and, and drain the abscess. And I just remember they were very nervous beforehand. And this was like, 
at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. So, you know, I'm tired, they're tired, nobody really wants to be there, um, but they were afraid. And um, I, before we did the procedure, I remember stopping and saying, would you like me to pray with you? And they said, sure. And so we prayed together, and then I went ahead and did the procedure, which draining an abscess is not a pleasant thing. Uh, it, it hurts. But I remember after finishing, it was as if they, they expressed to me that the prayer was so meaningful to them, and it was as if they didn't feel pain throughout the procedure. They were so grateful. And I remember leaving the emergency room that night at like 1 or 2 in the morning and knowing, you know, I hadn't slept as much as I wanted to that night. But it was just such an encouragement, not just to me to see what it did for them, but to me as well, to know that my being there for them at that time um, was able to give them a glimpse of God's love and, and help them through a difficult time. And so I think that, as we've discussed already, that prayer uh, for these patients is not just helpful for them, but it's helpful for us too, because it ministers to our souls as well. Um, Ellen White goes on to say that when the crisis is safely passed and success is apparent, let a few moments be spent with the patient in prayer. Um, and just how, how beautiful that is, that we're pointing the, the glory back to God, that whatever we've done to help them is not because of us, uh, but it's because of God, and we can thank him together. So um, in summary, we've talked about um, what are the signs and symptoms. Uh, we've talked about the, the technical aspects of how to treat patients. Um, the, the ADA clinical guideline for antibiotic uh, therapy is very highly, highly helpful. I recommend uh, you check it out and, um, and that we follow that a little bit more. But more importantly um, is that we take these opportunities when we see these patients um, to, to minister to them in their time of need, um, to specifically pause and stop and communicate to them that we love them and that God loves them and to pray with them um, and to share promises uh, from God's word. So if there are any questions, I don't know if I'll have an answer, but <laughs> go ahead. Otherwise, that's the end of the presentation. I hope it was helpful. Um, and thank you to each one of you who contributed. I learned a lot from each of you as well. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.